Hello and welcome to The Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Doc Podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome Mr. Justin Smith back to the show for the second part of our two-part series on financial advisement. As I mentioned prior to part one, Justin has been the financial advisor for my wife and I since 2006, and he's played a huge role in the ability of Renee and I to reach financial freedom in our mid-40s. It's important to note that Justin has done so much more than just manage our money. He's helped guide us on all of our financial decisions, from what paper assets to invest in, to what real estate to buy, to what business opportunities to take advantage of. And we're going to talk about all of that and much more on this episode. As a quick recap, in part one, which was released on November 9th, 2023, we discussed how to determine if and when you need a financial advisor what a fiduciary is, and why you need to make sure your financial advisor is one, questions to ask a prospective financial advisor to determine if they are the right fit, and provided an overview of how to approach saving money. We also discussed the emotional and behavioral sides of money and wealth, and Justin explained the traits he sees most commonly in people who achieve financial freedom. In part two today, we're going to dive deeper into the concepts we discussed in part one and focus on how different investment strategies can help you build wealth over time. We'll be discussing strategies for saving for retirement, saving for your kid's college, how to determine whether to invest surplus cash or pay down debt, how to diversify your overall investment strategy, and much, much more. To remind you about Justin, he is the Senior Financial Planner and Chief Investment Strategist at Smith Partners Wealth Management. He's a certified financial analyst and certified financial planner, and his particular areas of expertise are investment management and financial planning for young professionals, corporate executives, and business owners, college planning, and retirement planning. I went into detail regarding his academic background and professional accomplishments at the start of phase one, so be sure to check that out to learn more about Justin's qualifications if you haven't already. Before we begin, I want to make it clear that the content of this episode is for general information purposes only and is not intended to be specific financial, accounting, or legal advice, nor is it directed towards any one individual or group of individuals. Please consult your own financial advisor, CPA, and or attorney for information regarding your specific situation. So with that, I would like to welcome Justin back to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. Thanks for having me. Uh, my disclosure also, um, and it really says what what yours does. That this in specific advice. I'm not looking for uh, clients here. Yeah, my hope is to provide uh, information for folks, kind of a trajectory. Hey, look into this. Think through this. Talk to some qualified folks about this. But if you're taking specific advice uh, from this uh, episode and implementing it, uh, you're probably doing it um, a little recklessly. So uh, that that's my disclosure. Okay. Appreciate that as well. And I will put a, um, I'll put that up in video for those watching the video feed, uh, the disclosure up as well, uh, as you were saying that. So um, great. So uh, I had a great response to uh, part one uh, of, of this and um, the, uh, uh, general feeling and it was from people who were within the profession and and not it was from dentists and non-dentists um family members friends 
numerous people reached out to me, um, a lot of them with no ties to dentistry, um, to just thank me for providing that information and thank you uh, for providing that information and just how much they enjoyed it and really found it a unique, refreshing perspective that they hadn't heard before about how to think about and approach the um, financial advisement, but more than that, their overall financial situation. So today I want to dive a little deeper into this, get a little more granular into the concepts that we discussed in the first part of this series um, and just get a little more technical. As we said, this isn't, you're not going to be telling people what stocks to buy. You're not going to be telling people uh, how much they should put into a 401k. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose is to start to help people clarify in their own minds how to approach what to do with their money. And that is just such a confusing thing. And it's relevant to people. We have people who listen to the show who are residents uh, and and in their professional training and whatever their profession is. And we have people who've been practicing as professionals for many, many years. But that one thing is, is a, we all know people who are early in their career who have that question, who are late in their career or retired and have that question. Um, so I just want to try to provide a little clarity on that today and dive a little deeper in, into some of those concepts. Yep, it's great. So to start, let's let's talk a little bit about. Um, I, I want to stage this and kind of sequentially what what people should have. So we talked about the concept of savings. That you talked in in part one about the twenty percent. So uh, if we start to think about what we're doing with those savings, one of the things people talk a lot about is having an emergency fund or sort of cash on hand, as they refer to it. Uh, what do you think about that? How many months of expenses should one have for that? And what place or places would it be best for them to keep this money? Yep. Yeah. And there's uh, the business side of your emergency fund. You know, what should the business have? And that really is business specific. Uh, what's your growth path? Um, you know, what is on the horizon? And that is, you know, one complete conversation. Yeah. It bleeds over into, uh, the personal side. Uh, but on the personal side, you know, you hear folks talking about having uh, emergency funds, uh, often in terms of months of spending, you know, mm -hmm. how many months of spending should you have one month, six months, 12 months. Uh, I think there's a little bit of context I'd, I'd want to add to it that uh, emergency funds are really an investment in our future ability to think with a clear head. Uh, that it allows us often to make the right choice mm -hmm. that we should make uh, for our plan. But if we don't have that flexibility uh, to take care of a transmission when it goes out or to take care of expenses if something happens uh, on an income side, then we resort to making choices that aren't really in our best interest, whether it is, you know, uh, putting expenses on a credit card mm -hmm. or whether it is you know, not giving away money like we you know, want to be able to, if mm -hmm. that's important to us, or if it's not taking a family vacation, you know, we all have to make sacrifices when, when life comes along, but you know, if we can plan for things, does it have to disrupt everything? So that's what, that's the framework I'd want folks to think through is this is an investment. You know, often it feels inefficient, like, mm -hmm. oh man, I could invest this. I could grow this. I'm just going to stick it in the savings account. But mm -hmm. I like for folks to think of it as an investment in making real, really clear and thoughtful decisions uh, in the future. I also think it should be paired with uh, thinking about your disability uh, insurance, okay. uh, thinking about uh, do you have a home equity line available uh, to you? you know, okay. Do you have 
Uh, yeah, I think it can also be paired with thinking about an opportunity fund. You know, we have a lot of folks that say, hey, you know, maybe I want to buy a, a real estate investment at some point down the road. Or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'd want to, wouldn't it be great if we could do this big home renovation? But it's not like I need to do this because our family is completely outgrowing our space. But mm-hmm. this would be a dream. Yeah, you know, it can be paired with that sort of thing. Uh, to say, hey, you know, if life comes along mm-hmm. and we have to take care of, say, a transmission, uh, then it's fine if that home renovation gets bumped out further in the future. Like that's not failure for our family. Mm-hmm. And so it can be paired with that uh, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I think per person, uh, I do like thinking about uh, this emergency fund in terms of required expenses. I have a little bit of a different view on it. I read a lot of planners that say, you know, you don't have to include vacations. You don't have to include dining out. Like just what's the utilities, you know, what's keeping the lights running. Mm-hmm. I think if if life comes along, do I really want to uh, stop doing those things? Right. You know, if I say I need six months worth of expenses, but none of those expenses include things that are really important for our family, like, you know, the registration for our kids, you know, baseball league or, you know, going on a family vacation, yep. if I can plan ahead and then still be able to do those things, even if the transmission goes out or even if, you know, uh, you know, one of the, one of the parents uh, loses a job, mm-hmm. uh, then wouldn't that be great if I could plan and say, you know, we're keeping these things in here. Uh, and so I do think about it on a spectrum. You know, if you are a, uh, nurse that rents your uh, house uh, and you're single and you want to travel the country, well, your need for emergency fund is so different from the person with, you know, three kids that are enrolled in, you know, a, a you know, great neighborhood school or private school mm-hmm. and you're entrenched in this, you know, city that you live in and you have a really specific uh, job set, well, you might need more emergency fund because you are not as flexible. You know, you don't want to move to Sweden to take the next job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you really want to stay grounded here. And that's where I'm talking about. It gives you the time and the flexibility. You don't need a job next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, with the you know travel nurse, it's fine if they need a job next month. They'll just pick up and move. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think that is uh, important to, to think through, you know, how flexible are we with moving? How dependent are we with our current uh, income? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, I think there's also a component of the behavioral side where, uh, you know, we've, we've run through some of these numbers with clients and we say, hey, here's your number. Let's say it's $50,000 and they suddenly break out in hot sweat, you know, cold sweats, and they feel poor all of a sudden because I mm-hmm. say they should only have $50,000 because maybe their history is they've always had, say, $100,000. Mm-hmm. And maybe they even have a family history of a parent losing a job. And, you know, for whatever reason, that's their number. Sure. Yeah, I think for that person, what what I like to do is show the difference and say, well, here's what I think your plan looks like if you always keep $100,000 in savings. Mm-hmm. And if your plan can afford it, then by all means, you know, keep that $100,000 level in there. Like pay attention to the behavioral side of things. Let's Mm -hmm. don't have such a low limit 
or such a high limit. You know, if we have such a high limit that it makes us spend more, that's not really helpful either. Um, yeah, the yeah another component is uh, to make sure that uh, yeah it's all well and good to have an emergency fund. We also need to make sure that we can fill it back up. So mm-hmm. you know when that transmission goes, we need to make sure that within our budget that every dollar isn't spoken for in such a way that we can never refill mm-hmm. that emergency fund. So whether that is on an ongoing basis, we have you know, five or 10% of what we are, uh, what we're earning, what we're taking home, go to uh, the ability to fill up that emergency fund. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it's going to things like that renovation Mm -hmm. that is really great and we really want to do. Well, if the emergency happens, that transmission blows, then uh, if we can divert that savings that we've been putting toward the renovation to filling back up the emergency fund Mm -hmm. and all all is well in the in the world, then that's what I really prefer. It's where every dollar is spoken for. We got car payments, we got mm-hmm. yeah, school tuition, yeah, we have yeah, all the house payments, and we have no dollars left over to do anything, then that really puts us in a precarious situation where we're just knocking away this emergency fund because emergencies happen, you know, life happens, roofs yeah. need replacing, and yeah, we have all sorts of things uh, that happen. So I'd want us to be able to uh fill that back up. So not dipping into it for other discretionary expenses. Like we want to take an extra vacation. Let's grab the emergency fund. That should be a budgeted yeah. expense that you're planning yeah. for. Yeah. And- you know, I, re- I remember uh, when we were uh, first starting out, we didn't have any kids and uh, you know, we had a dog and we had this allocation where we would fund future vet bills and our dog never needed to go to the vet, you know, besides just the routine things. And yeah, I have a vivid memory of saying, hey, I think we could pull, you know, we wanted to do something special, you know, concert or something. I can't remember what it was. And we pulled dollars out of that, yeah, pet emergency fund. And we all know what happened next. We had a big old vet bill. (laughs) So we do need to think about if that happens, what other levers do we have? You know, we can think about like on a more serious note. Yeah, if we if we knock this emergency fund down, yeah, do we have uh, other avenues? Yeah, again, I don't. It's not always helpful to go to the credit cards or go to the home equity line, mm-hmm. go to the opportunity fund. But do we have those available to mm-hmm. us? Yeah, logistically, uh, yeah, what do we do with this emergency fund? I think is is important to to think about. Yeah, uh, I like to have it both near and far away. So mm-hmm. I want that money near enough that mm-hmm. yeah I can move money from that emergency fund you know, to my everyday checking savings you know, either be able to write checks out of it or easily mm-hmm. transfer dollars and by near you mean liquid enough right not like yeah liquid enough liquid, to be yeah. able to to be able to access it mm-hmm. uh but I, I also want it far enough away yeah I've seen enough folks where they say oh yeah my emergency fund is just the extra cushion yeah, this surplus in my yeah in my in checking, my checking account, account, yeah. mm-hmm. which is you know all fine and good except for yeah, uh, inevitably, what that ink, what that what that cushion in our checking account often does is it just makes us feel richer than we want to feel. Mm-hmm. Maybe we you know order uh, more at the at the restaurant, or maybe we do uh, you know pay a little bit more for vacation. A lot of it is buy just some more Christmas sub- presents. Subconscious, yeah. I mean, it's not like intentional, mm-hmm. 
but it just drips away. And so I don't want it so close that it's really easy uh, to make those. Oh, yeah, we'll just buy this extra for Christmas uh, mm -hmm. because we have all this cushion. Like I like it far and near. Uh, kind I like of that. Yeah, I like that. That That's a great way to for people to think about it. And um, for as far as where to keep it. Um, nowadays savings accounts you can get some online high yield savings accounts so those become options so it, it does it's not that they have to literally you know keep this in the dresser it's not that they have to keep this something where they can have it right away in terms of the physical nature of it but they can also make that money work for them so i sometimes people think oh my emergency fund um i can't have that money work for me at all it's just going to sit there and it doesn't make sense to have one because if i put that money into some sort of investment that maybe is more aggressive than obviously just sitting in an account savings account or checking account I could do more with my money. So maybe just talk to a minute about that philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, part of this is also, you know, we've had some folks that that have said, hey, yeah, you know, I do feel good about, let's say, investing those dollars. Mm -hmm. I think the problem with that is that, that markets go down. Like we shouldn't be surprised that markets go down. So if you have that emergency fund, you know, invested in all stocks, well, you should know what, what can happen at any given time mm -hmm. uh, with stocks. And you know, as long as you are prepared for that, you know, 40% decline mm -hmm. and yeah, you're happy to sell assets at 40% down. I mean, you know, one is just the, the practical nature of it. Yeah, it, go, it goes from being a six month emergency fund to being a two or three month emergency mm -hmm. fund. Yeah, that's uh, that's a problem. Uh, and then, you know, the other is, you know, will you really actually use it like an emergency fund if that's what you have to pull out? Oh, you know, okay. I think yeah, folks right, have a hard right. enough time just spending savings, you know, when emergency when emergencies actually happen. Mm -hmm. I have a hard enough time encouraging and reminding folks, hey, you have this emergency fund, go and spend it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, savers don't like to spend. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, spenders love to spend. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, these savers that have emergency funds, often it's hard enough to make yourself spend those that make it feel like failure. I understand that. Uh, yeah, I can, I can be a little stingy uh, myself. But especially if that is invested, are you really going to pull that out? And will it really be a freeing, like clear headed, you know, mm -hmm. back to the ability to make clear headed decisions. If you're having to sell a depreciated asset, are you really going to make a clear headed decision or are you going to walk around for the next 20 years thinking, gosh, I wish I hadn't. Yeah. Are you going to walk around with regret, you know, shooting on yourselves, as we say, yeah, uh, yeah all the time. I, yeah. I don't think that's really healthy uh, to do. Yeah. And so it, you would say about six months is the idea. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anybody regret having six months of expenses socked away. I mean, I think especially when interest rates are actually paying, you know, when, when high yield savings accounts are actually paying you something. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen folks uh, you know, come to the end of their days and say, boy, I was really inefficient. You know, it's kind of like um, having term life insurance. Yeah, like that is an expense that, yeah, if, if we get to the end of our days and we never use our term life insurance, mm -hmm. no one's kicking themselves saying, gosh, I hate that I had a life, uh, that I had life insurance all those years. Right. No, you have this for a purpose. You, you're intentionally being inefficient with your dollars to mm -hmm. cover this possibility of, of something happening. I would want folks to see their emergency funds in that same sort of light to say this isn't an inefficient way to invest my dollars in future, you know, good choices. Uh, so I think that six month uh, 
you know, you could do a whole lot worse than than having six months worth. Uh, yeah, 12 months. Yeah, again, I, I think it's a per person. Like, I want folks to think about why, like what actual emergencies could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we have folks that live in 100 year old houses. They have a different set of needs mm-hmm. than someone in a brand new house. Yep. Uh, you know, we have folks that are, you know, that have a single income earner. You know, they have a different set of uh, risks than a dual income earning household. And yep. so it really, it needs to be specific to the, uh, to the person. Okay, great. Thanks. And so it sounds like really creating that margin is the key, that margin of peace of mind and ultimately gets back to the behavioral side, right? The emotional side. I mean, it's what we spent most of the first part talking about. It's, it's so it's that emotional side that really just intertwines into all of this. Uh, so now that we've got our emergency fund filled, we've we've taken what we talked about in part one, where we're we're dealing with kind of how we want to approach these things from a philosophical standpoint, an emotional standpoint, communication standpoint with significant other. Uh, now we've uh, got our budget set and we understand our assets and liabilities and income and expenses. And now we've got an emergency fund that's built up to say six months of our expenses. And we've thrown in such things as the kids sports and a vacation and all those things to give us a nice buffer. And now we're all, now we're getting to the point where we're starting to have even more surplus. So you want to start to get maybe more aggressive investing, say again, not as it's a broad question because I'm not going to, I just going to go into specifics of what to invest in, but how do you recommend clients approach that next step where it's like, okay, now I have money coming in. Uh, and what do I do with that money? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I like to think about the best investment plan for someone is the allocation, you know, whether that is in, you know, uh, stock bond, you know, foreign stock investment markets, or whether that's real estate market, whether that's investing in business, private investments, you know, whatever that allocation is, Mm -hmm. you know, the best allocation for an investor is the one that gets them safely home that will likely get them safely home. You know, we always have this um, unknown future that we're dealing with, Mm -hmm. but the allocation that will best likely get them home safely with losing the least amount of sleep. And I think that speaks to, you know, risk and return. You know, what do we expect this asset to do? Uh, You know, how much volatility do we expect uh, to be in it? Uh, But it also speaks to, you know, what are we actually holding? So, you know, for a lot of our clients, you know, for for a lot of folks, uh, it is yeah, investing in uh, stocks, mutual funds, uh, ETFs on the yeah, stock side, on the bond side. Um, yeah, I think I would encourage folks to think about, you know, uh, what even within that will help them sleep best at night. You know, we've had some mm-hmm. folks call us up and they say, hey, you know, my my parents only ever invested in single company stocks, you know, blue chip stocks. They picked them all out. They watched the news, you know, and they they paid attention to that. And that's how they got safely home. And uh, that's what I want to do. You know, that type of investor, if you, you uproot them from that and, you know, place them down in an index fund approach, you know, without some education to say, this is why this is a better fit for you. Yep. And without them really being on board with that, if you just uproot somebody and put them in that, they're actually going to lose some sleep because, you know, again, this comes back to the behavioral side. 
if that is yeah how they yeah they can see oh here's this company it pays this dividend this makes me feel really good uh then you uproot them into this uh you know kind of unknown oh i got 500 stocks in here i don't know where that's coming from mm-hmm. that can be really uh disrupting but the same goes the other way yeah if if, if you you know, go to an advisor and they say well i know you've been doing index investing i think you should be in all you know single company stocks yeah sure it's diversified but you know, that person who has never seen a single stock go down you know, 60%, you know, maybe everything else is up, who knows? You know, they will lose so much sleep on that one line in their investment statement that it's not right. worth it. Right. And so I, I, you know, I encourage folks to think about you know, maybe some of your history. You know, how are you wired? Uh, you know, are you why you know, we had uh, one uh, client who you know, wanted to own you know, an unnamed you know, phone manufacturer uh, in their in their portfolio, <laughs> and uh, you know, you know, you, we could own a small, you know, we could own just a a tiny amount of it. Mm-hmm. But what that then did for them in this you know, real life is that they, when they were out to dinner, they would look at who all had what phones. <laughs> If they had the type of phone that they were invested in, they felt good. And if oh, no one wow. did, then, then they wouldn't. And they would pay attention to every news piece. Wow. And, you know, it's like wearing a backpack and they're just throwing more weights in the backpack. Yep. For, yep. You know, and, and it wasn't going to change, you know, the amount that they had invested wasn't going to change their trajectory uh, in life. You know, for them, I don't think that was worth it. We have other folks that are the complete opposite story that maybe they work somewhere, maybe they're you know, they had a parent work at a certain company and they want to own some of that and they don't care what happens with it. It just feels good to like have a stake yep. maybe in the company they work for or, you know, whatever reason that actually makes them stick to their investment plan better because they have that allocation. And so I, I have, I like for folks to think about that, but I mean, yeah, I do want folks to think about and be knowledgeable about what do investments typically do? You know, what have they done in the past? Mm-hmm. I mean, sadly enough, that is our best uh, gauge for what will happen in the future. You know, that's mm-hmm. the same way, you know, docs come up with a treatment plan. They know what teeth have done in the past mm-hmm. and they come up with this treatment plan for what might happen with this patient in the future. Now, it doesn't always work out as planned. You know, maybe mm-hmm. we have to change something in that treatment plan along the way. That's a great analogy. But, yeah, that's my that's my approach for it. And I think that's a, a rational uh, approach to it. You know, there are some good tools out there. Uh, you know, one is Riskalyze that, you know, folks can look at. You know, it's kind of an advisor-driven tool, but folks could find, uh, you know, an advisor who, who will, you know, be happy to put their portfolio in this. But, you know, one of the things I like that, you know, this particular tool does is it shows you, what what did these current investments that you're in, what did they do in 2009? You know, if they were around or mm-hmm. it finds some proxies for them, what did they do in 2009? What did they do in the last interest rate shock? You know, what did they do during COVID? I think that is so helpful to say, all right, this is the band of outcomes that my current portfolio could do. Mm-hmm. You know, can, will I, if that happens, Will I still make good choices from there? You know, if I see a 30% decline uh, over a six-month period, am I going to then go and make a choice that does harm me? 
for longer term, you know, selling mm-hmm. out uh, or, you know, reallocating, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that that's a healthy, it's healthy to know what could happen you know, in this really unknown uh, future. So that's how I'd want folks to uh, think about, you know, there's a stomach for risk. You know, there's, there's kind of this, uh, this risk that our stomachs can hold or our pillows can hold, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then there's a risk that our plan can hold. You know, what is our plan? What do the numbers dictate? You know, mm-hmm. how much risk should you take on? You know, what has happened in the past? If we, if we apply what's happened in the past to the future uh, and your contribution rates, your withdrawal rates, you know, what is likely to happen? Uh, and, you know, kind of seeing it through both of those lenses. Let's don't give either one too much weight. Let's don't mm-hmm. give a pillow too much weight. Mm-hmm. Uh and let's don't give the the plan too much weight. We got to kind of hold them both at the same time. That's great. Um, again, that that emotional side keeps coming coming back in, and, and the numbers tell you one side, but at the same time, um, the peace of mind of this and the emotional side is just is just so huge. And uh, yeah, we're love- we're messy humans. You know, yeah, if we, if we right. didn't have any feelings and emotions, and you know, we couldn't do anything, then that'd right. be other story if we were robots right you know, we probably invest a little differently but you know, the, you know, often the the biggest uh the biggest danger to a financial plan is often the human side of yep. that it's yep. it's rarely yeah yes you know markets fluctuate up and down and uh you know, but but it's often you know what do humans do in the face of that and it's rarely a rational numbers driven choice it's often an emotional choice so mm-hmm. like let's give that a seat at the table yeah no, that's great i love that you acknowledge that and discuss it openly because it's such a such an important point yeah. uh we hear a lot about diversification so um you know diversify your investments diversify your investments it's kind of cliche but you hear it all the time and i actually looked up the definition of diversification uh, and that is the spreading of your investments both within and among different asset classes so I found that interesting because I think people tend to think of it in the former sense of just within an asset class. Uh, they think of maybe buying a lot of a particular unnamed phone manufacturer and and um, maybe having a lot of that and say, oh, well, you shouldn't do that because if you're at the restaurant and no one uses those phones anymore, you're you're in a little bit of a, of a tough spot. Um, but I also think it's important to to acknowledge and address the diversification among asset yep. classes. So let's start with the former with within. So uh, how do people approach or how do you recommend for clients overall to start to approach that mindset of diversification within particular asset classes? Yeah. Well, and, the, and there's also yeah uh, another aspect to diversification, which is tax diversification, mm-hmm. which yeah, yep. we'll see if we get uh, some time to, to cover that. But I think it's an important uh, area. Yeah. I, I've got a uh, financial planning friend of mine, uh, Michael Kitsas, that that says, you know, diversification means always having to say you're sorry. And that's kind of tug in cheek. You know, it, it, uh, diversification can mean, oh, you know, I own this asset, this asset, and this asset. And if this one goes up and these two go down, then one way to think about diversification is regret. Say, mm-hmm. oh, man, I wish I had put it all in asset A that went mm-hmm. up, not any in asset you know, B and C. Uh, I think that is the wrong way to think about it. Mm-hmm. I, I want us to view diversification as never having to say we're sorry. Mm-hmm. Is that you know we we go into these assets uh, 
intentionally knowing here's the expected risk and return. Mm -hmm. And I think they're all positive. Yeah, I think they're going to grow over time. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to invest in something you think will go down. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, how are we going to uh, structure this? And then a year down the road, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, you know, they, they likely won't all go up the exact same amount, right? right. Uh, and so, you know, if we have, you know, asset B and C return less or have a negative return, mm -hmm. you know, one view how I would want folks to see diversification is I made my best guesses, uh, knowing what I knew at the time. And uh, diversification means never having to say, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. because, yeah, I did this intentionally uh, with a mind toward what my plan needed. And yeah, I'm approaching it in a way that that covers my bases. You know, it's not too different from that life insurance conversation or the emergency fund conversation. Um, and so, I, I would want things to folks to think about um, that. You know, asset classes uh, vary uh, wildly, uh, and uh, over time, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, yeah, we know why we diversify away from a single company. Uh, stock, you know, there's a you know, car manufacturer that you know, has this brake issue. Well, you know, that can go down in no time. And then, you know, 10 years later, everyone's forgotten about it. You, know, yep. you don't ever consider that it is unsafe. But at the time, uh, you know, people are concerned about it. Yep. And so, you know, we don't, that can make sense for us of why we would diversify that away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for a, a lot of folks, you know, math says, if you just think about single company stocks, you know, often, you know, if you own, you know, 30 or 40, uh, you're as diversified as with 500. Uh, but, you know, there's a big, there's a big difference between, you know, owning five and owning 30, 40 and, and 500. So mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it uh, when thinking about uh, diversification. Yeah. Among all of our asset classes, uh, yeah, I would uh, want folks to think about, you know, order of operations and what might I regret? You know, what is the lowest hanging fruit in mm -hmm. terms of return on investment and return on hassle? You know, if, you know, we think about, you know, a lot of folks are talking about rental properties and have been talking about rental properties, you know, over the, over the years, you know, just scooping up an Airbnb and, and making easy money. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, for some folks that works out great. Yeah, we've had uh, we had a client couple that you know, owned a rental property near a military base. That was the easiest property I've ever seen rented out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the tenants were great. They you know they were the ones they they swapped out dishwashers themselves. <laughs> uh, and yeah, they found the next renter, and it was dependable. Yeah, you know, that's great. Yeah, we owned a, a condo where the uh, renters were raising pit bulls in the back bedroom. Oh, gosh. That was not a great. No. Uh, yeah, it caused me uh, a lot of indigestion uh, over a lot of years. And so, yeah, knowing yourself, uh, again, what is going to help me sleep well at night? Yeah, you know, if it is having this diversified income stream, you know, this, these passive investments that, you know, often are a little bit more active uh, than mm -hmm. folks might realize. Um, then uh, let's explore it. You know, we have a, uh, a client who, you know, they had this idea to own some rental uh, properties and they came up with a great uh, criteria list. They mm -hmm. said, I only want to buy a townhome or condo 
that we would actually move into. So mm-hmm. it's like in a part of town that we would be happy to move into if, you know, if things happen that way that we had to. Yep. Uh, and they had their criteria of how much would they charge for rent as a percentage of the purchase price of the house. And they were disciplined with saying no to ones that were on the market that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And they started with one and they felt like that was fine and it, and it wasn't a burden. They had their emergency fund, you know, for these, you know, you know for this property. And then mm-hmm. they added a second and then they thoughtfully considered adding a third and they did. And then they said, this is it for us because, mm-hmm. you know, we looked into their plan and said the income stream that's, that's coming off of these rental properties, plus your social security, plus, you know, the dividends that come off, that's going to take care of, you know, very likely a hundred percent of your ongoing expected needs. Mm-hmm. And that really checked off something for them to where I think if that income from the rental properties was really coming from the investment account, they might be the type of folks then that would have, you know, the the financial news networks on the TV all the time because yep. that's what they would be thinking about all the time. Yep. For them, having these rental properties allowed them to be really good investors on the you know on the investment side to where the financial news isn't the first channel they check and might they might not even check it at all and so yeah i think thinking through how will these help me get to the end in mind you know not just because you know my brother-in-law did it or my next door neighbor owns one <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's not usually a good reason to go and diversify your investments. Uh, so, you know, don't get caught up in it. Like really think through how does this help me get where I want to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's a great story with them. And I, I think it's oftentimes unthought of or people don't put enough maybe mental focus on that type of story. And I'm glad, really glad you brought it up because people kind of think like, OK, I'm going to kind of dwindle down my my assets, my diversification, what asset pools I'm in as I get older, play it safe. Um, and there are ways to still play it pretty safe. Like you said, they were very responsible, very safe, very calculated. Some were being reckless and going out and buying a 20 unit apartment building with all right. of their, with all their savings to, yep. to uh, try to make that supplement their retirement. But I think sometimes thinking outside the box a little bit, starting small, making good, smart decisions. And I think that can apply to young professionals as well, or young people who are out in the workforce as well to say, Hey, look, maybe I don't need to just put all my money into my retirement plan or all my savings and do some of both, do some retirement plan savings, but maybe start to save for an investment property. If you, as you said, if you like real estate, if you have no tolerance for real estate or tenants, probably not the place you want to be. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think for, for folks to think through, you know, uh, return on investment and return on hassle, like knowing yourself and how are you made up? I've got plenty of you know, delighted folks who are in retirement and all they've ever had is a 401k. Mm-hmm. And you know, they haven't done anything cute. You know, they haven't done anything outside of that. They've, they've worked, they've enjoyed their days, they've socked away dollars and that is working well for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we don't necessarily need to, but I, I want us to think through what does this do for me that if I don't do it, like what's the opportunity cost? If mm-hmm. I don't do this, what am I going to do with it? How will that you know, impact me? Yeah, you know, I want folks to think through, you know, there, you know, often for folks, uh, you know, one of the greatest returns on investment, especially for younger uh, investors is investing in yourself. You know, uh, yeah, 
folks with a whole lot of student loans, you know, know this, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, often investing in yourself pays back. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't always in all professions at all times, but it can often pay back, uh, you know, much better than elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so let's think about that. Um, you know, when we have the next amount of dollars that come in, you know, if we end the year with excess dollars, yeah, I want us to think through and be agnostic to some extent about where the returns come from. I think mm -hmm. yeah, I'm biased, but I think you yeah, having a fiduciary walk through this with you and, and not just say, you know, often, you know, be mindful of who you're talking to. Yeah, mm -hmm. frankly, I think if you talk to uh, a you know, real estate person, surprise, surprise, you know, their you real estate, right. place is going right. to be real estate. Yeah. If you talk to an insurance person, if you talk to an investment advisor, I mean, even then, yeah, I want folks, if you talk to a business consultant, yeah, they're going to say, hey, yeah, your next $10,000 should be invested in your business. Well, I'm not saying that's not true, but mm -hmm. I think it's helpful to be mindful. Of where's the advice coming from? And for me, where is that best investment? Because I think all of those can be good and be helpful, uh, but we got to do some of that math. And we're just dealing with unknown futures. You know, mm -hmm. We've had folks where I might say that insurance policy is inefficient, but yeah, uh, if something happens uh, that turned out that looked like a really great decision uh, in some hindsight, yeah, mm -hmm. same with yeah any of these other avenues, but we're dealing with a really uncertain uh, future. Let's take that uh, into consideration. Yeah, and, and to that point, I know having you uh, as our advisor and fiduciary to be able to help Renee and I down the path of making those decisions was super helpful because all of a sudden, uh, which is why I said in the first part of this, it's really important for people to have get that financial advisement early in your career before you think you need it, because all of a sudden what starts to happen is what's happened so often in life. And you, you find yourself in a different place and it happens. Yep. It takes time, but it happens faster than you think sometimes. And so all of a sudden more money starts coming into your practice or your business. You start doing more, having more surplus. And I think that's one of the critical points where not just from a dollars and cents X's and O's standpoint, you start to set the trajectory for the rest of your life, but from a mindset standpoint. And you've always been big about explaining, you know, the the, the habitual nature of saving into that, say, retirement plan or the right. habitual nature of setting aside dollars for gifting and tithing and those whatever what you value. And if you start it early, even if it's yeah. not a lot of dollars, <laughs> but, but it's still a percentage and that percentage is relevant it helps you. And then what happens is you start to fill up those different buckets of, of, uh, of investments, say a 401k or retirement. And now maybe you buy a rental property and, um, and you are always very good at saying, well, what's the business look like? You know, I think that's something right. that's really important. I want people to understand from their seeking from their financial advisor. You would say, you know, what do we need to buy anything for the business? Do you, do you have any investments? Do you need to hire some more staff? Do you need to in, improve your facility, uh, add another chair, right. whatever it might be based on how the business right. was growing. And I don't think people think of that as, as a, an asset is sort of the diversification among an asset. Like that's an asset to divert. That's a diversification of an asset. You are investing yep. in something that you hope to get a return on. Uh, I think so often we think of it as again, a rental property or a stock or a, a fund. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's really great point to tell people, Hey, look, even if you have a lot of debt, even if you have some other challenges, doesn't mean you don't still start saving. That's right. And we'll talk more about the debt side and student debt side in, in a moment, but doesn't mean you don't start saving. Uh, and then as you have those patterns and those habits and that discipline, because it takes discipline built in, then when 
that margin continues to grow of what you're bringing in versus what you're spending, you you as we talked about in part one, you try to keep those expenses at a reasonable amount and don't just keep raising them. And now you can do things like invest in luxury apartment complexes with a big national group that does that. Or uh, obviously right. you need to vet these particular things. We're storing out examples, but you know storage units across the country. Or then when we right. sold our building, we were able to do a 1030, as we talked about with the with John in, in one episode with him, do a 1031 exchange into a Delaware statutory trust. So you start to then open these avenues um, that it just, I don't want to say it gets easy because it's a ton of work to get it there, but the execution of it, while it seems so overwhelming, if you are just starting out or if you haven't yep. done any of this, putting those processes and systems into place from the beginning really makes it like the discussions you and I would have, or you and myself and Renee would have, it wasn't like it was this, you know, all night brainstorming session. Right. We'd hop on a call for an hour or two and, and run through this stuff. And, and then we'd be like, yeah. And then I'd shoot you some emails like, Hey, here's some opportunities. You'd look at them. Um, and we'd say, well, let's do this and split it between this, or maybe next year for that, or want to buy an investment property in Florida. Do we do this? And, and it just, again, it, it gets to almost be fun and enjoyable. And you start diversifying among assets just by doing more. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely um, it's interesting the psych again the psychology of it, right? But if you don't start doing it at all, and then all of a sudden, 10, 12 years into your career, fifteen years, twenty years in, it's really hard to, at that point just start building. Yeah, I mean, your lifestyle, of, you know, uh, goldfish grow to the size of the tank. You know, our, yeah, our lifestyles grow to our available income. Yeah, uh, and you know, most folks, I, I read a great, uh, an interesting book uh, called Die with Zero, and the you know the point. Mm -hmm. It's about you know how folks should operate uh, with their dollars. You know, a lot of it was about you know make sure you're having experiences. You know, and, and one of the uh, things that the author talks about is you know why are we telling folks who are making you know fifty thousand dollars at the start of their career, you know, hundred thousand dollars? Why are we telling them to save their twenty percent? Like, is that really going to do anything when they have so much more earning capacity later? You know, should that? But but you're only you know. 25 once is that when you should go travel the world or is mm -hmm. that when you should and and I can get on board with some of that if I could you know, have a contract with my future self mm -hmm. that I would have to sock away my 20 or 30 you know whatever you know, you have available then when you do have that high income if I can have a contract then and and be required to do that that's one thing but we again we're humans and you're introducing a 20% savings rate at age you know, 35 when you got a couple of kids and you yep. have obligations and your you know, friends are buying nice cars yep. and you know, vacation homes. You're introducing a savings rate then is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, a lot of it is that habit of you know, creating this. Yeah, and it's not just the, uh, there's a great article about the double-edged sword of retirement savings and you know we often see the difference between saving at you know 15 and 20 percent mm -hmm. you know, obviously adds a lot you know and i don't care where you're saving that to and investing that but just socking that away and growing it at some rate the difference between 15 and 20 is huge mm -hmm. but you know, almost more so the difference between living on 85 percent of uh, what you make versus living on just 80% and having that be your standard of living mm -hmm. almost has uh, you know, an equal additive effect 
that when we cross over into retirement, we mm. haven't been used to spending at this amount. We've been used to spending at this amount mm. and really mm. happy with it. Yep. And yeah, that has a really additive effect too. So it's the kind of double-edged sword of benefit. You know, we'll, we'll include a link to that, but I, I think that's how I'd want folks to, it can feel like Debbie Downer, like, oh, this is my, this is my time to enjoy my dollars. Why don't I? Well, yes, uh, but also, uh, you know, I want us to to instill those habits uh, soon. And yeah, that's probably, uh, you know, probably where you think you're going to get your return uh, is not really where it's going to come from. And so let's let's think about having that margin in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you would always refer to that margin w- with us. And um, I tell residents when I when I teach residents, I say all the time, you're never going to live a lower affluent style lifestyle than you do now for most, obviously there's some outliers, but for the most part, you're never going to kind of get by on less than you have when you're a resident in an orthodontic program uh, with significant debt, which most all of us had at that point. So it's really hard conversely when you start going, it's it's hard to start drinking cheap beer when you drink better beer. It's hard to go back to a $5 bottle of wine when you're used to more. It's hard, yep. whatever your, you know, your spirits are, you enjoy. I mean, it, it's hard with anything just to simplify it, to go back to something that is uh, sort of in your mind, even, even if it's not, you know, even if you just put one to another and no one could tell the difference mentally, again, back to that emotional psychological side, it's hard to feel like you're stepping back. And especially for professionals and high achievers who have uh, have worked really hard to get where they get. Um, and so I tell them, like, you've got to, if you've got a car that's working and it's doing well, don't go buy the luxury automobile right away. Yep. It will come. You'll have time. You don't deserve it. You're not entitled to it. It's not, you know, you've worked hard and you deserve to be able to make a living in your profession. But it's really, really hard. It's that delayed gratification, right? It's being able to just say, right. I'm happy with where I'm at now. I would like more, but I can wait a year or two to have a little more and start small. And I think that was one of the biggest keys to to Renee's and my success is is starting small. And we found ways to enjoy things and go on vacations. And you were very good with that of saying like, no, y'all need to do, you know, said to the y'all, y'all need to do this. (laughs) Um, uh, Y'all need to do this and and be able to, um, you know, kind of uh, enjoy life. You can't just sit there and, and, and try to obsess over work and savings. At the same time, keep within your means and invest in the business as one of your asset classes initially and let that start to grow. And then as that does with that margin, you can, if you don't raise your lifestyle in accordance with what the income is going up, you have flexibility and options. And again, that's why I say the concept is simple, but the execution, um, boy, it's, it seems real hard for, for the majority. Well, and and you know one of the one of the phrases I like to say is that you know I really you know love you know Mike and Renee at age you know forty five, but I also love age sixty five Mike and Renee. I love you know age eighty five Mike and Renee. And yeah, you know, if we're making this choice for forty five year old Mike and Renee, what does that do to sixty five and eighty five year old Mike? Does it make them sadder or does it make them happier? Right, right. You know, does it give them more flexibility or less? You know, one yeah. of the I saw a study where um, one financial planner, uh, you know, took some AI program, you know, took the client's faces and aged them and said, you know, here you are at age 60, but added all the wrinkles oh, that's great. and all that. And said, this is, and so if we, if we don't have the savings rate or if we don't spend these dollars in a way that we enjoy it, 
you're here is age 65, Mike. You know, you got a couple of wrinkles. Maybe one day you're going to have gray hair. I doubt <laughs> Uh, but yeah. a couple in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what? What does this do to this person? Like this is a person, and you know, I often encourage folks like know yourself, and then probably go the other way. You know that if you are this saver, and you never enjoy your dollars, and you yeah, uh, your beans and rice all the time, even probably when you don't need to, mm-hmm. maybe drift the other way and see where can I enjoy some dollars. You know what can I put because. You know, the same conversation that you're having with someone to say, hey, I think you need to up your savings rate because 65-year-old Mike and Renee aren't going to have the flexibility that they want. I think we could show that same picture to someone and say, hey, I think you need to go on this family vacation you've been talking about Mm -hmm. because 65-year-old Mike and Renee, you know, aren't going to be able to do this with their kids who have full lives. Yeah. And so let's consider, you know, what what is my future self? What is my future self going to enjoy? You know, what can I give to my future self, whether it's memories or extra dollars? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, we don't know the answers, but what can I give my future self that's going to like let them be who they're supposed to be? And then still also, you know, uh, let me be who I'm supposed to be. Yeah, it's it's kind of balancing that die with zero concept with that rich dad poor dad concept. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. There's probably some middle ground there. Some yeah. middle ground there, right? And I think that's another thing. As you listen to a podcast, uh, you listen, you read different books, and they tend to go down a path. And at that time, it sounds good, and and that right. doesn't mean it's not good. It's just it doesn't have to be an absolute an absolute all the time. Uh, so before we jump into student debt and uh, how to manage and, and, and deal with some of that, um, just a, some quick thoughts on cryptocurrency from you. I know yeah. it's, it's something that's re- very relevant out there. Uh, and just what are your thoughts on it? Um, in, in a- yeah, talk about uh, uncertain uh, futures. Yeah, none of this is investment advice. And if you think it is, you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I could very well see, you know, uh, a 65-year-old, you know, wrinkle and even more gray hair, uh, Justin saying uh, one of two things, either um, I could either say, hey, do you remember cryptocurrency and how that was a thing? Gosh, I don't even remember that. That was you know, like pet rocks. And you know, can you believe that was a thing? Uh, I also think 65 year old Justin could you know, pay for uh, his you know, Starbucks with cryptocurrency. Like mm-hmm. it, either one of those outcomes will surprise me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think approaching it uh, in a way that avoids my future regret is probably a helpful way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're the type of person that if you miss out on the next great thing, you're going to walk around with that like a weight in your backpack mm-hmm. for the rest of your days and, you know, tell the neighborhood kids, well, what, yeah, I could have invested. You know, like, that <laughs> right, right. If you're that type of person then you might want to consider investing in it. I mean, not necessarily for what it's going to do for your financial plan, but- But So uh, you can say, I bought Bitcoin at- (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, like for me, uh, I should probably walk around with more regret than I do, but I just don't. Like Mm -hmm. I I have a short memory for that sort of thing and I don't walk around with it. And so for me, I I don't have any of that FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. Yeah. I don't have any of that in so many areas. Again, it'd probably do me good to have some of that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, knowing myself, and I think the other, the other end of the spectrum is also true, that if investing in this and it goes to zero will also be a weight on you mm-hmm. and you carry it around, 
just emotionally or also financially, you know, there's plenty of stories you can read out there of folks that invested and, you know, made big gains and then they sold some yep. or, you know, they, they have this realized gain bill that they maybe don't realize that they're supposed to have. And then it, you know, goes down and they don't have the actual, dot. like if it is actually going to impair my ability to have the flexibility that I want in the mm-hmm. future, then that's probably at a level that you don't need to have. And so, yeah, I tell folks, I think you should you know, probably treat it like hobby dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there's advisors out there that, you know, treat it like an asset class. And well, I know there are. Uh, and, you know, they approach it that way. Uh, that's not how I do. I think about it more like hobby dollars. Mm-hmm. But I think you, you know, each individual person needs to think about, you know, how much does my plan require? You know, do I have to do this or do mm-hmm. I want to, you know, uh, if it goes up, you know, a hundred percent and I have invested or I haven't, how am I going to react? You mm-hmm. know, how my plan going to be different? Uh, the other way, if I, if I invest you know, X amount of dollars and it goes down a hundred percent, you know, how am I going to react? How mm-hmm. am I going to, you know, operate in life? How, what is it going to do to my plan? Like we need to answer those questions ahead of time uh, and yeah, then operate accordingly. Okay, great. Thank you for touching on that. Um, And as we start to come to the last topics here, student debt and college savings. So uh, it's big, especially for the, the dental community in our audience, but for really anybody out there who has attended even college, let alone professional school beyond that. Um, student debt's huge. Uh, I believe the average debt for the in the orthodontic community after completing their schooling is over half a million dollars. I think it's like in the 560-ish range. Uh, I think for g- general practitioners, it's 250, 300-ish. It's, it's a big number. Um, yep. It's a big number. And so people are coming out with this debt. Interest rates aren't what they were. Um, you know, I came out Renee and I combined were around 250,000, but we were able to lock that up at a really low interest rate, you know, early about 20 years ago. ago. So it was a little different. Interest rates are high. So people look at this and they come out with this huge debt burden and there's a huge emotional psychological component, but there's also the, the numbers component. And they think that really, they perseverate on it, but they perseverate on it because it's such a big number. And so yep. how could you help people start to think about the payback process of student loans? Is that something they should be ultra aggressive on? Is that something that you recommend people just ride it out over as long as you can? I know there's some different repayment programs and income-based right. programs, and I don't want to take the time to get into all those details, but just from a general philosophical standpoint, what do you typically advise people today? Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of braces, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah it, it yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, a lot I of mean- years of a lot of braces. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That is that that is an investment in your future uh, earnings capability. It can mm-hmm. also be a real weight uh, on your back. But you know, to some extent, it is a uh, sunk cost, and yeah, it needs to be uh, in that um, yeah in your financial plan and in how you are making your cash flow planning. Um, uh, uh, choices going forward. Mm-hmm. And so it needs to have that, you know, top of the table, uh, you know, uh, place at the table. I, I still want folks to think about opportunity cost. You know, if my rate is down here and my in, in high yield savings accounts pay me this much, mm-hmm. then if we're robots and we don't have any feelings and emotions and don't have any need to pay off any debt, then math says, 
you know, string it out for as long as you both shall live mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, just drip away at it. We have a different uh, set of interest rates and, you know, cash savings. Uh, then we need to uh, analyze it as such. Yeah, mm -hmm. if, yeah, and even more so if the interest rate on our uh, on our debt is, let's say it is at the same rate as what we expect to earn in an investment account. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, this one is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so if we pay down an interest rate that is uh, guaranteed and in, in flat rate, uh, then it is actually a better return on investment than expecting to get that uh, same rate elsewhere because mm -hmm. this can vary. Yeah, this is like buying a CD, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and so you're yeah, buying a CD at that rate, you know, having a, a savings account at that rate uh, would be beneficial. The caveat to that is, you know, with the CD that's paying that same amount at our as our, you know, college, as our you know, student loans, if we put money in that in that CD, we get to take it back out and have access to it. Mm -hmm. If we pay down those student loans, uh, they don't really return your phone calls. No. When you say, "Hey, can I have some <laughs> of that have money some back?" That? I'd like that to like, pay down. Yeah, uh, they don't that back. Plus, they don't tend to like to yeah. do that. <laughs> no. And so, liquidity is, yeah. You know, um, all things equal, if you have a you know CD or high yield savings account that's paying the same as your you know student loans. Yeah, I would say, and again, this is per person, but I would say you're probably better off just socking away in your high, yeah, the additional dollars above your minimum payments. Yeah, right. the additional dollars, probably better off socking it away and saving it in this high yield savings account mm -hmm. because you have flexibility. Yep. You can go and make those, you know, lump sum payments. Yeah, if we uh, if we keep having great years and we build up and build up and build up over here, then we can you know, sock those dollars over here. Mm -hmm. uh, pay down additional or if interest rates change, you know, if interest rates come down in the future, mm -hmm. you know, that can be where we uh, sock dollars away. So yeah, I do want folks to, uh, you know, treat it that you know, like it is uh, an investment, you know, treating like treating that debt down payment, that debt reduction as a investment, I, I think works in that area. It doesn't work uh, in areas like credit card debt all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if credit card debt is is really high, uh, yes, paying it down is a return on investment. You know, paying down a twenty five percent credit card uh, rate is a return on investment, mm -hmm. just like you got a twenty five percent return. Mm -hmm. The only difference is that often when we you know, pay those down, we see them creep back up mm -hmm. uh, over time. Yep. And yeah, you know, and then if we keep paying it down, keep paying it down, well, that's just spending. Yep. Like that's all we're doing is just spending. It's not. It's, that's not an investment. We're just funding our lifestyle. So our savings rate is not really 20%. If half of it is going to this credit card debt that always jumps up. Yep. But if it's going to the student loan that isn't jumping back up, you right. know, it's just being reduced, then that does um, you know, work and act more like an actual investment because you're earning a return uh, you know, by eliminating this um, ongoing payment. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the second side of that is the emotional return surprise mm -hmm. that I would mention that, right? Um, yeah, I don't want, I think with this long-term, uh, with this with this debt that allows us to earn, uh, yeah, a, earn a good living, uh, I hate for, for someone who's, you know, 30 years old to walk around like that as a baggage, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like that's a weight, uh, but I can't change them. Yeah. If that's the story, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like let's say they had a parent 
that didn't pay off their student loans till they were 60 uh, and they don't want to be in that same boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fine. If, if this is who you are, if your makeup is you just want to not have any debt every day that you walk out of your house with the student loan debt, you feel like you're beholden uh, to it, then sure, like allocate dollars. Just know that we're not we're not going to have access to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we better have this other free cash flow to to be available to us. So would you um, recommend that five obviously five twenty nine tends to be a very common way for saving for college. There's obviously other ways people could could yep. save for their their kids um, kids' college expenses. Yep. I think sometimes it it kind of becomes a, a bit of um, again, the psychology of it. It's like I have half a million dollars in in student loan debt, and now I'm gonna not prepay that to save for my child's college. Yep. It really creates a bit of a mind twist for people to try yeah, to conceptualize that a little conundrum. So, what do you what do you recommend as far as from that perspective, people who have significant amounts of debt or maybe are not saving for their retirement at all yet, but have a child, do they start to put away for their child's college education uh, at that point? And then the second part of that would be uh, how aggressively do people do it, saving for child's education into something like a 529, knowing that you could technically oversave um, right. as well? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it needs to be seen in the context of your whole financial plan. So like, let's go to the end. Let's go to our mid nineties and Mm -hmm. back it up Mm -hmm. uh, and say, well, if I build in, you know, here's my income and I'm socking away this much to uh, retirement savings and I'm socking away this much to uh, my student loan repayment. Do I still have capacity uh, to save for college. Uh, and yeah, if we can build all that in, then yes, we can do those, those goals concurrently. Okay. Uh, yeah. To some extent that's diversification, right? I'm diversifying yeah. Sure. You know, my, yeah. my allocation to both of these, uh, goals. I, I don't see enough parents. Uh, I, I think a lot of parents get swept up in just going on college visits, you know, Oh, my kid's a junior. All their students, you know, all their all their classmates are going to visit. You know, I'm in North Carolina. Uh, they're going to visit UNC Chapel Hill. They're going to visit NC State. They're oh, and by the way, yeah, let's go ahead and go by Duke yep. and let's go by Wake Forest. Those are all those are very different products, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, and don't get me started on you know my biases between all those. But, uh, mine, mine neither. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I think I think just just. Doing that and doing, I, I see a lot of it uh, really based more on the behavioral and emotional side than the math side of it. Okay. Uh, where it's just, you know, if my kid's happy, yeah, isn't that the most important thing? And yes, I want our kids to be happy, but also, uh, how much happier are they going to be at this institution than this one <laughs> for the cost of of what it uh, right. what it comes down to? I really Very want true. to have a family philosophy on education. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, maybe it comes down to how much you love your kids. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but so, so yeah, I, I've seen folks on on either end of the spectrum. These are literal examples. We had yeah, a client who said, I want to pay for any year, however many years it takes. And yeah, really, whatever grade they get and you know, however many years of school, I want to take care of all that wherever they go. And that mm-hmm. is a giant number. Mm-hmm. And then we had a you know, grandparent who had the you know ability to pay for 
uh, grandkids school and yeah, they kind of took the boy named Sue approach where it'll like, you know, make them better people. That, that'll make, that'll make sense to half <laughs> the Southern half of our audience yeah, below the Mason Dixon. Exactly. Uh, yeah. They, yeah, they, they say, you know, college wasn't paid for, for me. And I think it shouldn't be paid for, for them because that's what turned me into who I, who I am. And I can't say that either of those are wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, that is the truth for that person. Uh, and if they've thoughtfully gone through that exercise, then you know, my role as an advisor is to help them do either this goal or that goal. Right. For me and my family, I got our plan actually from a client. This was a client's uh, idea. And they said, we're going to pay for all of the A's and B's at in-state schools for four years. And like yeah, if you choose to get, uh, yeah, if you choose to go for more than four years, that's your choice. <laughs> you can pay for that fifth year. Right. Uh, if Even if you're getting choose, A's and B's, it's still. <laughs> right. If, yeah. If you choose to get C's, D's and F's, then you can pay for those. Yeah. And, you know, practically speaking, like they held their kids to this where your know, parents footed the whole bill. Yep. And then they saw how the kid did that semester and they kind of put it on IOU and they mm -hmm. have kept those kids to that. Wow. Great. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure. You know, I'm, I'm sure maybe I would cave uh, with one of the kids. I won't tell you which one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, please don't. <laughs> um, but, you know, the um, you know, having a, a Smith family philosophy on school where we love education, I think it's so helpful. Uh, I want to enable our kids to, to get an education. We have great schools in North Carolina. And uh, I don't it doesn't feel like failure to me to tell them hey, you know, we're going to pay for this level and these grades and this many years, and you can take care of the rest yep. if that's the best fit for you. Yeah, I do want parents to be involved uh, a bit to not just say, sure, like if you want to take care of that, you would one whose uh, kid went to you know, uh, uh, NYU for a creative writing um, degree. That's not mm -hmm. a cheap, in case you're wondering, that's not a cheap uh, degree. Nope. That's not a great return on investment often. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Yeah, I, I think there is a role to say, yeah, hey, well, this is what your life looks like. Mm -hmm. yeah, these are the jobs you have to take if yep. you come out with 200 so plus from an undergrad degree uh, in debt. And, yeah, you have you have this degree. Here's yeah, this is your life. Here's yeah, here's 30 year old uh, you and you're saddled with, you know, $2,000 a month of school debt and you're still not making a dent in that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think having those conversations is you know, probably the most important uh, piece of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can't sit down a five-year-old and have that. I'd wait till they're six at least. <laughs> at least six, maybe seven. <laughs> um, but you have those, have those conversations. In the Duluth house, uh, dinner starting at six was when we uh, right. got real intense on the college discussion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you yeah, have those conversations. Uh, and then, uh, and then really, you know, help, I think a, a great you know, parent role is to help the kid, you know, find the, the degree and the school that uh, is a good fit for them. I've seen, mm -hmm. you know, too many students uh, come through and like, just feel like college is the default option. And yes. so they should do that. I have yes. a lot of folks that I think would be better off uh, going to trade school Agreed. and yeah, they would feel more accomplished. Yep. They would probably earn more dollars. Yep, and yeah, and have less debt better. and owe less. Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw yeah, that it would all be a time. better option for them. And yeah, I think just having those conversations—that's hard, uh, especially you know when your when your friends are going to 
you know, visit some SEC school. Like, doesn't that seem so much fun because they always get the college football playoff anyway. <laughs> and definitely don't go to an ACC one. That's uh, uh, no. uh, but yeah, but you know, let's don't get wrapped up in that. You know, yeah. on the actual 529s. Uh, on know, that point, I, one, like, one second, Justin, I just want to interject, sorry to interrupt, but um, such a great point. And one thing that actually motivated me to start doing that, um, you've obviously talked to us throughout about the importance of having a family philosophy and education. What really drove it home though was in practice. I saw these kids and I was practicing in with affluent suburbs around and very intelligent kids. And man, I'd ask them all the time, you know, sophomores, juniors, do you, hey, what do you want to do? What do you what are you thinking of? You know, and they just I don't know. You know, do you want to go to college? I think so. Again, no idea of really where and where do you want? Would you want to go? Not sure. So um, they it was it was so common. And then I saw a lot of those kids, the same kids or others who were in college and would come back for like a new retainer or something after you know summer of their in between years of college. And oh, how's it going? Where are you at school? Well, I started here and then I didn't like, like living there. I didn't want to go there. I went here for a sport, but did the coach change? And all those things can happen, right? I mean, I mean, my kids are just getting that age of college. I certainly, it could happen to one of them where they end up not staying at the school they go to. But I can say, realistically speaking, it was probably more like 10 or 11-ish, like when they got to middle school, so maybe 11, 12. And we just started having the conversation with them of just start to think about like what you want to do. What do you like when you're in school learning? Like what subjects do you like more than others? Um, think about, do you want to go to a big school or a small school? Like you said, you know, do you want to have like big D1 sports programs or do you want to play a sport in college? And just start to think about that. And not that it's perfect. And again, I don't know yet whether we've succeeded at it, but I do know with my senior who's starting to think about uh, or has applied to colleges now and is, is facing going to be going very soon. Um, I think it helped her to kind of think through when it got to the application process. She did already start to have a bit of a vision of what she wanted to pursue, generally speaking, and the type of school environment she wanted to be in. And again, don't know if it'll work out. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that um, I think it's really important to do exactly what you said, which is to start having those conversations with them younger than you probably think. I agree. Five or six is might be a little much, but again, off the bus from kindergarten, asking them. <laughs> Uh, where right. they want to go. Me, give me your business plan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, need your, I need your 10 year plan. Uh, uh, you know, we, we don't have those. But. Yeah. Yeah. Like a pro forma on uh, how you're going to balance your debt and your, and your income. But ultimately, um, you know, I, I think having those conversations young with your kids uh, is probably as helpful and more helpful than even maybe the saving side of it. that We all obsess so much over the dollars and cents because you could save a ton. They go to a school that is super expensive. Like you said, get a degree that they're not going to be able to repay uh, you or the debt or whatever arrangement you have. Uh, uh, and ultimately feel unfulfilled, which is the worst of all, even if money isn't an object. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, and on that, you know, savings front, you know, 529s, uh, they are just a, a an account type where you know, if you put dollars in them and spend them for qualified education expenses, then any of the growth that you had in that account uh, is tax-free growth. You know, mm -hmm. Otherwise, if you, you know, had it just in your brokerage account, taxable investment account, if you put those dollars in and spend them for qualified education expenses, you pay your capital gains uh, tax rate. Which and they are post-tax dollars, correct? That go into yeah, those. Yeah, you put post-tax dollars in there. Um, when some states you get a tax, a state tax benefit for putting dollars uh, into, you, into your state's plan. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, some states have prepaid tuition programs. Um, if you're not in a state that has a tax deduction or a prepaid uh, program, there's not a whole lot of incentive to do your state's program. You can do a different state's mm -hmm. program, okay. still pay yep. for education expenses in a third state's 
uh, schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, for a lot of folks, yeah, if we're if we're if we don't get that tax shielding, then you know, if ten thousand dollars ends up growing to thirty thousand dollars over some amount of time, mm-hmm. uh, then you're paying capital gains taxes on that twenty thousand dollars of appreciation, mm-hmm. and depending on your income level. That might be 15%. It might be 20%. It might be really more like 24% mm-hmm. uh, with some additional taxes. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just if if we know we are going to spend dollars on qualified education expenses, mm-hmm. then it doesn't really hurt us uh, to, to put dollars into those. Um, yeah, we want to be mindful. Yeah, if like we don't necessarily want to fund it. Like all three of my kids are going to go to Duke and I need to pay for, you know, all four years of their Duke um, uh, education, you know, Lord willing, let's oh, so would you, would that be allowed even or uh, it's not, uh, but they've, they've hurt, they've hurt me too much uh, for me to allow my kids to go there. But uh, yeah, if, if we yeah, allocated all those dollars there and then, you know, one of the kids, uh, wants to go to a state school, well, then I have some dollars wrapped up in this. If I'm not spending them for qualified education expenses, if, I, if I'm spending that overage on a boat, uh, then I'm paying my taxes and I'm paying a penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wouldn't want to lock all those up. Uh, can you so take the principal out without the penalty? Or? Yeah, so you can get your principal out, but okay. you know, for for our you know, you get you get taxed on the on the earnings, you get penalized on those earnings there. But the mm-hmm. yeah Often I would tell folks, yeah, I like to be on track to pay for, you know, maybe 40 to 60% of what we expect uh, along the way, because okay. very likely uh, what happens uh, in the future is, you know, once my kids are off at uh, school, I'm probably at my higher earning uh, years and mm-hmm. I probably have an extra cash flow to be able mm-hmm. to foot those uh, bills. I will say the the thing that's changed um more recently is that uh, now there are the, there's this 15 year rule for 529s where as it stands now and I haven't seen how this really works in real life because it's not not live till next year but uh, if you have had a 529 account open for 15 years mm-hmm. uh, then uh, you can take out 35,000 of it uh, right now the number is 35 I think that'll go up over time but I don't know. Um, where you can take out 35 and actually put it into a Roth uh, IRA in that beneficiary kid's name. Only Uh, in their name? You couldn't put it in a Roth in someone else's name? So you can put it in related persons. Um, There was talk at one point of like, could it return back to me? I think that's some of the view, like that's some of the thought around it. Is that me as a parent has overfunded beyond my needs for college, like shouldn't I be able to get some of that back and not penalize myself? Right. Uh, And so, yes, I I believe you're going to be able to turn it back into a parent Roth. Um, Yeah. Again, I haven't spent too much time uh, on this because we can't even do it yet. Um, But then uh, I think for a lot of folks, yeah, they might want to give that kid uh, a Roth because the only way to fund a Roth for them now is to have them have some earned income. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's a way to have them have a, a, a Roth account without having corresponding earned income. So it can allow folks to maybe fund a little bit more than they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that the, the real benefit tax wise, if you 
if if your invested assets in a in a 529 let's say they are at a flat uh rate you know they're always only going up that's not how investments work fyi but let's assume that they do mm-hmm. theoretically your best years to fund it are the earliest years right get those mm-hmm. dollars in there soon yep and then uh you get to you get to enjoy that compounding and that tax free growth rather than dripping some in every year and then you know when you're putting in those dollars when the kid is 15 mm-hmm. you know you're likely you know a lot of these age based plans by the time a kid is 15 they're almost in all bonds you know, if you're mm-hmm. doing one of these age based trajectories they take on less risk often as they get closer to college you know, you're putting in that next thousand dollars into a bond investment mm-hmm. that you know likely won't go up and down as much you know you're likely not getting a whole lot of tax benefit from that is it really worth it putting in those dollars then or should you sock away those dollars in, in just a regular old brokerage account that gives you more flexibility uh, if they don't end up going to school so yeah. there is some consideration of how how much i should fund it you know what's my philosophy mm-hmm. how much should i fund it uh typically earlier is is better than than later i mean the exception to that is you know if markets go down you know, if I fund a little bit now and then three years later, markets are are cheaper. Yeah, I get to buy stocks for cheaper than right. sure. Yes, that that's the better time. But you know, unless somebody's got a crystal ball, they don't know that. Right. You know, markets tend to go up. Uh, that's been the trend for the last 120 years. Uh, but you know, Lord knows what's going to happen going forward. Yeah, and I think it's almost counterintuitive to think spend put more money away when the child is younger. It tends to be a kind of that. Uh, you don't, that's a bucket you don't even think you really need to fill maybe initially, right? You're kind of like, oh, I've got time, I've got time. And again, that's where I was saying before, it's a long time, but it goes quickly. Next thing you know, you have a middle schooler going to high schooler, start to panic to try to save and it gets harder at that point. And it's obviously less advantageous from an actual dollars and cents standpoint as well. Well, and with this 15 year rule, uh, I do think it's probably in folks incentives, you know, even if they say dollar wise, I can't really meaningfully fund mm-hmm. this for good point four yeah. years i'm gonna wait no, yeah well maybe let's let's fund it just a minimum rate yep, yep. uh one time today start that clock yep um and, and again i don't know how all these rules are going to work out in practice i haven't even seen a form yet from a 529 uh provider that uh that would allow someone to re- roll these dollars out so yep. i'm speaking a bit uh blindly here but uh yeah i don't think if if I had to bet, I don't think you can switch 529 accounts from this provider to this one, you know, from this state to this one and keep that same 15 year time horizon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had to bet moving it from, say, North Carolina to Florida's plan, that's probably a new clock that mm-hmm. starts. Then. Yeah. Uh, and so I would I would want folks to be mindful of that, research that uh, before they go uh, you know, make any changes. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for, for going into that in that detail. That's super helpful. Um, so as we come to the end here, uh, you've I, you know, offered so much information in these in these two episodes, um, talk through so many different areas. If you could just take a moment and try to just kind of distill it down into a few digestible pearls regarding how someone, and it doesn't matter what age or what state they are in their career or what career, but just philosophically, what are the best ways for someone to achieve financial freedom? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, again, I'm biased, but it's hard for me to see where getting a second set of eyes on your plan Mm -hmm. uh, does anybody 
anything but good. You know, mm-hmm. depending on who that is, uh, I think anybody listening to this uh, could find someone uh, who is qualified to find out what's important to them and have done this you know, a number of times in a number of years and say, hey, you know, knowing what we know, if this uncertain future, If we do X, Y, and Z, it'll likely put us on a better trajectory to Mm -hmm. where you want to be. Uh, And so I do see, uh, yeah, I don't think everybody necessarily needs a financial advisor. I think there are folks, and we talked about some in the last uh, episode, I think there are folks that have the makeup to be investors. Uh, They have the knowledge. Yeah, they they love reading, uh, you know, tax tax summaries. And yeah, I mean, I think there are folks that can do this. They have the Mm self-discipline. And so I'm not saying uh, that that everyone needs this advisor to to walk through all days, but uh, it's hard for me to see where having someone kind of hold accountable, provide some insight, uh, provide some guidance and expertise uh, doesn't uh, go to the good. It isn't a good return on investment. And so mm-hmm. I think you yeah, find somebody whether that's uh, yeah having no plan uh, is not as good as having a plan, you know, one time plan. Uh, I'm again, I'm biased, but I think having uh, some ongoing planning is probably better, you know, because life will change between today, you know, day zero and, and, you know, day 365, we're probably gonna have a different set of options and outcomes uh, that, you know, we want to review on. And so I think having this plan, I really want it, you know, built from the back uh, forward, you know, what are we really solving for? What is uh, important to us about money? Mm -hmm. Like, if we want this, say, vacation home, or if we want to send kids to private school, like what about that is important? Mm-hmm. And like really being intentional about writing this out. And yeah, I have found that, yeah, in conversations with clients, if I ask that third or fourth follow up question, uh, that's where I really get to the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, if I say, hey, you know, talk to me about college. Uh, college planning, you know, what's our, what's our goal there? And they say, I want to send our kids to private school. If I leave it there, I can put in that number. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if, if I get to, well, tell me more about that. Like, why is private uh, college important to you? Well, you know, that's what my you know, dad did. And I was really helpful. Well, tell me why, like, what did you see was helpful for your dad going to the private? Yeah. You know, I mean, right. right. Yeah, for some folks, they don't want to get into all that, but I haven't found because I think if we can get to the why, like sometimes I get to the why. And the the reason we are wanting to do this particular choice, we're really trying to solve for something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if someone says yep. Like, yep. I often run into it when I, I ask folks, well, what do you expect to earn investment wise? And they tell me, you know, 12 percent or whatnot. Yes. And I say, well, why? Like, why is that important to you that we earn that? And they mm-hmm. said, well, you know, it'll give me the most money. Well, why? Like, why do we need the most money? Well, because mm-hmm. it'll give me security. Mm-hmm. Well, why is security important to you? Well, mm-hmm. because let me tell you about X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I get it now. Well, yep. maybe earning 12% return isn't as important as making sure we have a you know solid disability insurance policy right. and making sure we have emergency fund uh, set aside. Like right. maybe those are really the tools to solve for uh, this, this, you know, I have a fear of uncertainty and what could happen. Well, yeah, we, 
nobody can guarantee this 12% return. And so if we're putting all our stock in something that is unknown and uncertain and unattainable, that uh, is shifting sands. But if maybe we could solve for socking away dollars in an emergency fund and doing a disability policy, like those are things we can control. Right. Does that really solve the the pain point? Yeah. Uh, and so I would encourage folks to think through the why um, as, as hard as it is. It's a lot easier to solve for. I want this return. Yep. It's just a lot harder to get that return. Yep. And so let, let's, you know, we talked about in the last one, there's an overlap. I want folks to think about what is important and what can I control? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that little Venn diagram, that overlap in the middle is what I want folks to really spend their time and effort on. That doesn't mean we don't think about things that are important and things we can't control, but let's spend our time and effort on things that are important and things that I can control. Um, I also want folks to think, uh, you know, think about their old selves. You know, think about mm-hmm. 65-year-old, you know, Mike and Renee, mm-hmm. and what do they value? What are they going to miss out on? Uh, what flexibility do we want to give them? Um, and then, you know, some of it we talked about before, you know, just kind of knowing yourself. Uh, the financial plan for uh, the for the practice next door, for the doc next door, who makes the same amount as me uh, and you know, has the same sort of business as me. Their financial plan uh, very likely isn't the same plan that I should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, know myself. Am I a saver? Am I a spender? You know, do I want to be generous with my with my dollars? Do I want more flexibility? Mm-hmm. Um, and then just know that we're dealing with uncertain times. Yeah, I think a lot of folks, especially with professionals, uh, we like our certain paths. You know, we yep. like this this wide range of outcomes to be as narrow as possible. Yep. And I think we can work toward that. You know, just in that you know, example of if we have enough emergency fund, I think we narrow the outcomes. If we you know, have the adequate uh, amount of insurance, I think we narrow the outcome. Yep. Yes. Yeah, you know, we have a little bit less return because we have less dollars. We're paying for this insurance, but we also you know, bring up the, the bottom half of that. I think we can work to do that uh, as much as we can, but know that we're, you know, we don't know, uh, you know, we don't know what our health is going to be in the future. We don't know what, yeah, the state, yeah. If you ask docs 30 years ago, if they could predict what's happening in, you know, orthodontics today, they wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Like, you know, whether it's, yeah, you know, Invisalign or- well, know, I was just going to say, doc. literally, I mean, if you told someone even in the early to mid nineties that we'd be moving teeth significant amounts and successfully with plastic, you would have gotten laughed at. So- Right. And yeah. so, yeah, we don't know what will happen. And I think, yeah, there's there's a great part of uh, the psychology of money by Morgan Housel. I think we talked about that last uh, yeah, yep. time where, yeah, he says, yeah, probably a great attribute of financially successful people. Uh, and I'm a butcher this quote, but yeah, he says, you know, you should probably attribute a little more of your success to luck than you think you should. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you should probably attribute a little bit more of, boy, I'm at this place because of all of my dealings and all of my brilliance. Yeah. Probably a little bit of luck. And then also, yeah, let's attribute a little bit of the of the um, of the downside in life also to luck. luck you know, yeah. uh, Bill Gates happened to you know when he was um, coming up in school, his school happened to be one of the few schools that just happened to have a computer at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And he got the right. opportunity to program. Now that's not saying he wouldn't have found one later. Right. That, a lot of his story is luck that he was placed in this position. 
you know, let's attribute a little bit of this. You know, in our financial plan, we will just have so many variables happen. Like, let's don't get down on ourselves when you know, it doesn't, doesn't work out. Let's don't get a little too full of ourselves when it does work out. You know, having, I think having a little bit of humility, a little bit of grace in that uh, goes a long way, too. But those aren't as, you know, those aren't as, as attractive words as return on investment. Right, right. And swaps and all that. And right. So, um, yeah. Uh, that's 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 awesome, and I appreciate you encapsulating that and and wrapping it all up and tying it in in in, in such a great way. Um, and just take, for taking the time to to be here for the doc audience, for everyone who's consuming this podcast and sharing it with others and and passing this information along. Uh, it really, as I said after the first one, I got tons of great feedback. I know it will for the second, and can't thank you enough for that. And thank you as a friend and an advisor for all I've done for us over the years, and just your passion for what you do, and and really your sensitivity to the bigger picture than more than just the dollars and cents, but trying to help build people's wealth and happiness and uh, build them a lifestyle that they want, trying to get them to realize the lifestyle they want, uh, which right. which sometimes we just need a, a hand doing, you know, it, it's, yep. we think we know, uh, but it's great to have someone there to do that. I know it's been very valuable for us. So thanks so much for taking the time and uh, yeah, look forward to continuing our relationship on and, and uh, we'll talk soon. Well, it's fun. Uh, if I could cartwheel uh, into work, I would. Uh, it's it's a fun it's fun work to do. Yeah, I believe it. And it's you know I know what drives me so much in in my line of work is is helping people and and knowing the difference I can make in people's lives. And clearly, I mean, you're having just an unbelievable impact. Uh, I know we have on ours, but in the lives of many people, and um, you know that just even the the support, the emotional support, the psychological support, but also being able to put that into action to to help them. It's got to be pretty rewarding when you see people yep. later in life who you've helped who are at a different spot than they would be otherwise. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Justin. We'll talk soon. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you. Bye. Thank you for watching this episode of the Doc Podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to ADA SERP recognized CE courses or to schedule a private one-on-one -on -one coaching session with me. And remember to join the Doc community on Facebook for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Facebook, search for the Doc community, and request admission into the group. You can also find Doc on Instagram at, at theorthocoach. And always remember, you have been blessed with the ability to do amazing things.